together. The two together, he's in the background. Yeah. I don't know how to go and start into this. Everything had to be left. Then he wanted to go to the back. He said, oh, no. Of course I would be calm. Who would make you think I wouldn't be calm? I would, uh, <laughs> and then when they start, you know, with no, they just have to say write in the password and I go. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Good morning, Joan. Good afternoon. No, I don't know. Hello, Joan. Good morning. There's Elena, Elena, we miss you. Feedback from online land that it would be better if, if uh, when I was talking, my picture were bigger. That happens so when I um, when I set my laptop up. I gotten lazy, 
because I have to take it down and pull it out, and so I just needed oh, to be wow. kicked in the. <laughs> Maybe Mary would do that for me. Like, oh, no, Mary. No, no. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, anyway. So now, now I'm now. If, if you were happy to have me distant, I apologize. If if having the speaker a little bit closer helps, here I am. How do you like me? Yeah, now? it does. That was very true. <laughs> All right, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in John chapter 17. And it, it, it dawned on me, I mean, John's writings, uh, if we understand that um, Revelation also um, is related to um, John's Gospel, we should be aware that there is a um, a liturgical pattern to them all that that connects to to the Eucharistic liturgy in the sense that um, it, well, if you look at what we've gone through here from John since the Last Supper, uh, we have this sort of You know, three or four, three, four chapters, four chapters of Jesus teaching, kind of the word come to us. And now we have a chapter of, of intercession, of prayer offered to God. And then Jesus, we're going to get into the passion where Jesus offers himself. And then he'll appear after the resurrection of the disciples. That roughly is the, is the pattern of the liturgy where we come in and there's a liturgy of the word there is intercession, there's the remembering of the sacrifice, and then there's the encounter with the risen Christ and the sacrament. And if you pay careful attention to Revelation, it has a very similar pattern in the sense that, um, uh, different but similar in that in Revelation, you know, you introduce Jesus in chapter one, chapters two and three are all messages to the, to the churches, a word to the churches. And in chapter four and five, you get more of the heavenly picture. It starts with come up here, which we might say lift up your hearts. And then you're all of a sudden there with angels and archangels in the heavenly place. So John has a demonstrably liturgical pattern to the unfolding of, of the message of his gospel that's, that, that can be seen if you, if you look closely. So here after he's left them with the teaching that will that they'll that they'll understand after his ascension, the Holy Spirit comes. Now we today we have intercession. Jesus is going to pray for them. So let's start. We'll start reading and talk about that. And um, there's a lot of you know. We just have to unpack the words as we go. So Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. 
So we've talked about the hour. What's the hour in John's gospel? Huh? Yeah, the, the hour for his crucifixion, the hour for him to come and offer himself. Whereas before his hour had not come, typically my hour has not come. It's like I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, engage in confrontation or like at the wedding of Cana, I'm not going to make the wine yet because my hour has not come. But uh, now my now is time. Now, he says, glorify your son. Your son may also glorify you. And this idea of, of um Glorifying um, needs some unpacking. What does it mean? What does it mean? Glorify your son. Be like revelation, fuller revelation of the glory of God. So Jesus is now going to. He's doing the will of the Father, and he's going to do it. You know obediently through death. So the, his prayer here is the Father will will um, and glorify it. It could be a sense of re, be revealed in this act and 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 um, of, of the Son so that so that it will shine forth. One of the um, paradoxical ideas of the Gospels, and I think John certainly has this, is that. Um, is that Jesus is glorified on the cross. We would tend to think that the resurrection is the glorification. It's one reason why um, when we're saying the creed and we genuflect, who came down from heaven, was incarnate, the Holy Ghost was made man, and that we come up and we say, and was crucified for us also under Pontius Pilate, because the the, the crucifixion is seen as his, as his glory. This... Um, is it kind of a revealing of the, of the nature of God? Like, this is... I think that's right. It's, it's glorification is revelation of, of the glory, which is paradoxical. Yeah. The humility of God to die. You one In one of the other Gospels where this point can be brought out is where um, the uh, James and John, or in one Gospel, James and John, in the other Gospel, their mother... Uh, comes to Jesus and says, um, you know, we want you to do something. And Jesus said, what do you want? He says, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. And so they're thinking about, you know, they want cabinet-level positions in the new administration. And Jesus answers them, can you drink the cup that I drink? And Basically, you suffer with me, and he says, "He said, well, okay, you, you, I'll let you do that. I'll let you suffer with me, but you can't have the seats on my right and left. That's already given to two people." And the paradox of the gospel is the two thieves, because he, here he is being glorified in his kingdom, and that John and James and John can't be there because they can't. Those two seats on the cross are already taken. But hey, no problem. You'll suffer too. So, so the idea that that. The, the, the suffering of Christ in obedience to the Father. It's not, here we want to make clear that we're not just talking about um, the glorification of suffering for its own sake. It's the willingness to embrace what comes upon you in order to do the will of God. And so Jesus does that, and so he's glorified 
here he is doing this. And so obviously it has a connection to the resurrection where he rises in glory. But you can never be separated from the cross. And I think it's a real danger of certainly contemporary Western Christianity to always want to skip that cross because there's no resurrection without it and there's no glory. It's why the cross is typically the centerpiece of our churches is that's where he's glorified. And yes, he rose too, but you can't get to the stained glass window at the top of our church unless you go through the cross that is below it. And the idea that you can is a fundamental error about the Christian life. And it's not too much to say that maybe the fundamental contemporary error is that you can somehow get to the resurrection without the cross. And I'm aware of the sort of sentiment or maybe that's too negative perspective that says, well, why is Jesus on the cross? He's risen. He's not here. He's risen. So we're just going to talk about the resurrection. And so in some evangelical context, it will be like he's not there. And there is a point to that. But if you really pay careful attention to the New Testament, the bearing of the cross and the sharing of the resurrection are always together. And therefore, the enduring need to focus on cross and our share in it as a pathway to the resurrection. And the idea that we're not going to talk much about that and just get here leads to a very unhealthy Christianity. I think it – I see it, Connie. So let me just – I'll finish that and ask you to weigh in. I think it pertains to some of the problems I think are funeral errors where everything is a celebration of life and there's no place for mourning. Of course, we're rejoicing in a life. We've also lost someone. And someone has died. And there's legitimate sadness about that death that you even see in the New Testament sometimes. It's not like, oh, no, there's no hope. That's never what – the cross is not like suffering. The cross is the expression of the necessary pain that comes from our fallen condition. And when it's embraced faithfully, it leads us to the cross. And so in the facing of death setting, it's like, yeah, we can mourn not as those who have no hope, but it's really a problem not to mourn. And that's a lot of times what happens. And we can become – people come – it's almost an extension of the kind of just you don't feel things, you don't have emotions, just put them aside and do what you're supposed to do, which is clearly not a testament or a biblical thing. Because northern Europeans are worlds away from near and Middle Easterners in terms of emotional processing. Well, I just wanted to share that Dr. Harris shared one time that the first kind of suffering is the avoidance of suffering. You avoid suffering not only do you avoid that growth, your family around you suffers. And in my work with him, he would always talk about the cross. Like, oh, you're at the cross, aren't you? 
But to me, that cross, too, is a reminder that that is our it was uh, Scott Peck's writing for Popular a while back. One thing he stayed stuck with me says that all, he said, this is a, a slight paraphrase, but it gets the point, that um, all neurosis is the, is the result of an attempt to avoid legitimate suffering. That's the cross you embrace, legitimate suffering. It comes, what's legitimate suffering? It's partly we have, we're in the human condition and things come upon us and we get weaker and sometimes that's pushed along by diseases that, 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 that uh, we pray for and don't get healed. Um, it's um, legitimate suffering is legitimate opposition. The opposition we face when we stand faithfully for Jesus, that's legitimate suffering. Those are the things that, that uh, so, um, the connection of glory with the cross and that Jesus is glorified by being lifted up on the cross is a central gospel theme. Well, just, I, was, I just made a video right before, in between Mass and this Bible study, because I had a client this morning and I was just reflecting on this exact idea, of course, it's always like that. But it was like... Um, Sometimes when we didn't feel affection and love and we felt withheld from in childhood, when we go into the suffering, the cross, it feels in the moment like we're starving. We're starving and it reminds us of that bad feeling of starving. And we don't want to have that starving feeling again because it really hurt in childhood. But it's like you get to, this isn't starving. I, I was just like, it was given to me with spirit. You're fasting. You're not starving. You're fasting. And just from us fasting on Wednesdays, help me see that. No, I'm choosing to fast. This is my choice. And not go into, like, win this argument, you know, even though, because it feels like it'd be better for me to take this. I'm starving right now because I'm not expressing whatever, you know. I don't get to win, you know. It's like, no, or I'm not making money. It's like these billions of dollars, these people are making these businesses that I'm studying. It's like, well, I'm not choosing to go the way they're going. And that doesn't, it's not an excuse, like you said, to not work hard. But it's, I'm fasting. I'm not starving. God will show me the way. God will keep showing us the way. And, and another aspect of that sort of maybe um, childhood suffering trauma is that part of the result of it is you don't experience the emotion associated with it. So part of the healing is getting back in touch with the emotion and facing legitimate suffering. That, 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 that we have pushed off into exile. As a whole story, we won't go there here now, but, but that's, but that's, um, it, it's, uh, it's related to the idea that, that it's not okay to experience what you experience. Like when you, if ever, it, it's an innocuous phrase where someone says, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Um, but if what you've experienced leads to an emotion that is this, you do feel that way. So if someone says you shouldn't and you believe that, then what it means is you shouldn't be you. And so this, you, you get this pattern where how you legitimately feel is, is prohibited. And so part of the healing has to come back to integration of, yeah, that hurt. And that, I, I think that actually becomes a space of prayer, and, and, and I, this is a little bit of a digression, but I think it's an important enough point for the spiritual life, that if, if in, in truth, 
a significant part of your emotional experience of, of your life has been pushed away, prayer is going to be really hard for you, for us, because we come as this person with, with a part of us that's really over here, and until we can reintegrate that part of ourselves into our prayer, um, we're going to we're going we're to have trouble relating to a, a God as someone who cares when we're not all there. So this is why part of the idea of, of, of experiencing what you've experienced, and that's I think this is the mystery when Jesus says, well, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That when you get in touch with the pain of your life, you realize it's, it's the pain of your life, it's also your participation in the pain of the whole fallen human condition, and that's Jesus came to into to save, um, so it opens the door for the crucified one to enter your pain um, in, in into the silent land. Martin Lear, in a book we like, he talks about the liturgy of our wounds and that the wound is the door of entry. So there's a whole thing that pertains to this, but this is the glory of Jesus on the cross relates to that's how he enters our lives when we're in touch with where it hurts in our lives. And, and therefore, our own suffering gets connected and redeemed by its connection to the crucifixion. And, 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 it, and it's transformed. I got the sun coming at me. Where's that coming from? Oh, that little thing there. Oh, I, got, I got about 10 minutes of, of too much brightness. So Too much glory. I can't handle it. The glory. <laughs> yeah, so where where's it coming from here? Uh, um, but uh, that that um, that embracing of that, and it's it's a balance. It doesn't mean all your life is sad. It means that your actual experience of life can be acknowledged, embraced, experienced. And that's where Christ meets you. Because so much of religion is, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, and, and you show up as, here you are, but you're not, you are not there. You are fragmented. And therefore, why, why do you want to relate to a God who doesn't even connect to your real experience? But this gets, gets back to John here, to glorify the Son, so the cross is the glory. It's his connection to the human human experience of alienation from God that we all experience through our own pain, and this is why our pain can become a connection to His His, and therefore it it, it transforms pain because apart from Christ, all that pain is in a merely worldly way the pain of death, suffering. What's that mean? It means we're all going to die. But this is why with with when Christ comes into our lives and specifically through the gift of the Spirit, it transforms into the pain of birth. Now, just as the cross was the gateway to the resurrection, so our own suffering, united with the cross and 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 uh, and, and through the Spirit, becomes our the way that our suffering is redeemed and and leads us to our resurrection.
And therefore, the, the point about that is, therefore, we it suggests also that we can't get to our resurrection without our cross. And that's why a religion of Christianity tries to avoid the cross and pain is always false. So there's that. So verse two. <clears throat> so you, as you have given him authority over all flesh. That's interesting. So the son of man, Jesus, the incarnate son of God, has authority over all flesh. This is everything. This means the father is committed all authority to the Son. We remember this when you say Jesus is Lord, don't mean like the Lord of us in the church. It means He is the Lord of the whole creation. He has authority over all flesh. That He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. So, all flesh, and this gets into the whole conversation that we'll get that, that John will engage and Jesus here will engage about the world versus his people. But in biblical perspective, the world is alienated from God. That and, and so this is why the world crucified the Son of God, because it, it doesn't it lives in a state of rebellion and opposition to the rule of God. So Jesus comes to save, so in order to save them, he has to um, bring people out of the world into his life, <coughs> the ones the Father has given him. The one, the one, and whether it's presented as, it's presented in, in terms here that suggest that the Father says, you, here you get these people, but there's also on the human level, it means you're, when Jesus says, follow, you come. So it's God's choice, which is indicated by your, the surrender of your will to his will and faith and following. And this is eternal life, verse 3. But they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, and, and to know here is that sense of um, experiential knowledge. This and, and biblically, this is back to where in, in the garden scene in the beginning, that, that in a certain sense, Adam and Eve lived in, in, um, in union with God. Now, they were spiritually children. They did not yet fully know the Father. They lived in a sense of communion. Um, and it's interesting that, that uh, the, the temptation was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, they, so that the movement from infancy to maturity would have in any event been a growth in knowledge. There's no sense in which the first humans portrayed in Genesis were in a finished state. The, the, the point was they were to grow from their spiritual infancy made in the image of God into maturity by faithful obedience. So in the ideal sense, they would have seen the tree of good and evil, temptation of the evil one, their internal desires in the flesh, the outward offer of something and said no. Instead, they brought sin in and that separates um, 
have separated them and humanity from union with God. Now, if we understand this rightly, then salvation for us, as we're reconnected with God in um, by baptism through faith, we're restored, in a sense, to the position of the first humans in the garden. We're spiritual infants. We're not there. And we have the same, the very same vocation. What is that? To grow in the knowledge of God by faith and obedience, knowing that there's going to be an evil one in the world and the flesh offering us stuff to pull us away from that. So to know God is is how is is by following Jesus in the path of faithfulness through trial and temptation cross, we will grow in the knowledge of of of, of God. We we will come to know him. And that's eternal life to know him. And Part of the thing that's going to come out of this, because he said that the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent, Jesus the Messiah, is the one who's come to show the Father. And what's going to happen in the prayer here is that Jesus is going to talk about sending his apostles. And the word sent is the root word for apostle. So in a sense here, the Father, Jesus is the apostle of the Father. And then... The disciples are going to be the apostles, the ones sent by Jesus. And their their ministry and witness in relationship to Jesus is the same as Jesus in relationship to the Father. Jesus makes the Father known, and then the the um, the apostles and the witness of the churches to make Jesus. Verse 4, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So what's that? this gives another sense of what the glory is. The glory is to, to, to live in faithful obedience to God. That's what it means to, to glorify God. It doesn't mean to, um, you know, in our terms, to have a big ad campaign. Hey, God, it's great. If, we're, if, if it means to to walk to, to faithfully obey him, he's finished the work. This word "finished" is it's it's a word that in various forms comes up in a lot of places, but it's related to this word I've preached about occasionally called "telos," which is to to complete. And so when Jesus says on the cross, "It is finished," same word. And when it, it talks about um, when when um, it's it's at least the same related word when Jesus says be therefore perfect, the word perfect really means something more like complete, be whole, and and it I think that the be, the best way this is understood in terms is in terms of creation that God created the world it was good, it fell through sin. Uh, Jesus is 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 finishing the work of new creation. The new creation work is finished on the cross. It is finished. And it's planted in us through the Spirit. And then, so we're to be perfect. We're to be completed. We're to grow into that which we're intended to be. 
by the path of faithful obedience. And as Jesus finished the work he'd given, the Father gave him to do, this is part of our own discernment. What is the work he has given us to do? And that doesn't mean like, you know, so they, you know, conquer the world. It, it may be very faithful work. It may be small work. That's all you're responsible for. What does God call you to do? Do that work. What gifts that you've been given? Use those gifts. And um, this is why I think that sometimes we get caught in something great. Well, actually, the paradox here is if you just do what you're supposed to do, that may become something really great. If you try to do something really great that's not really what you're called to do, it becomes just you flexing. <laughs> so, um, verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This gets us back to John 1.1. 1, 1. Beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. But here's the Word. The Word was made flesh. In a certain sense, he... surrendered his glory, at least in a visible way. He never ceased to be the Son of God. But but he left this place of, of um, exaltation with the Father to take on the work of redemption of humanity by taking human nature upon himself and living this faithful life. The thing, as the new man, the first, the thing that the first man, Adam, had failed to do. He did that. He's living this. Now he's finished the work. And now he's saying, now restore me to that which I've done what you sent me to do. Now, um, Restore me to where to, you know, and, and that's the natural that's the natural um, result of that faithfulness. Just like in each of our lives in following Jesus in the path of faithful obedience, we finish our work, we have the hope that, that God will restore us to the glory that humanity lost through sin, that we are now gonna we're gonna have that same trajectory. Before the world was, again, gets this theology that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, when we say, when the Bible says, in the beginning, God. So before the worlds were made, God is. He is the, the, the thing that is, that has no origin. And the, the being that is, who has no origin, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As, as, uh, um, begotten of his father, as we say in the creed, before all worlds. And the theology of the church that, that came up in the councils that wrote that creed is there never was a time when the Son was not. It's called the eternal generation of the Son. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. There's never a time when that was not, which means that God is that root, not a, a solitary person, but a trinity of persons who together are one God. 
which really in, uh, informs the Christian perspective that that the the the, um, the given thing is a loving relationship. So that we say that um, it's not simply an abstract principle of love. But he's loved because the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And the Holy Spirit is understood by the church to be the love that goes between them and then flows out from them into the world. And this, this also informs our, um, our uh, doctrine of, of creation, because you say, well, why did God create the world? If you ask a school child, you, he, would, he or she would say, you must have been lonely. You know, all alone, you, you want to, and that's actually the pagan answers often are, are that you know God was there and needed some servants. Uh, but 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 the 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 Christian answer is that God is is full of love within Himself. He's a loving relationship, and that love that He exists, that He possesses by nature, naturally overflows into creative activity. So. In a sense, you could say that it, it's kind of, I thought about this a little bit. In a sense, you could say, well, God didn't really have to create the world. He's, he's complete in himself. On another level, what we learn about love is it can't be kept to itself. So almost the love of God mandates the sharing of it in a creation, which is why when you, you talk about having the love of God, whether it be in the church or somewhere, it's always expansive. It's always, it's never selfish. We're going to, let's, let's, let's go live on a desert island and have our love. It's always, whatever this is, it, 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 how do we open it up? Because what we have, we want to share. And that's the mission of the church, therefore, rightly understood, is that there's a cultivated sense of God's love and community in the body, which mirrors the Trinity because... Whereas God is three persons in one God, the church is one body with many members. But the same, and, and the love that, that exists in the community, if it really reflects the love of God, will naturally result in an open door. I want to share this with you. I've been on this Christian journey, the more I think about love, I think the nature of love is to express it. That captures a lot of it right there. It's the nature, but it is. And, and, to, and, and so it just overflows into creative activity. And, and so in a certain sense, when, um, when you have the, the fall of man and sin, and God is there, now obviously... This is in the mind of God because it's not a mystery to God. But if you just take it sequentially, of course love will come and redeem. And that shows the depths of God's love, not just creating it's all good, but coming into the human experience when it's all bad, taking on that or redeeming that disorder. Um, and that is love, which then, when we partake of that love, therefore, um, 
the natural thing, the natural outgrowth will be we will we will like if I receive from from Christ life, forgiveness, redemption. I'm going to naturally look at other people and say, I want to. So just as God didn't sit in heaven after the fall and say, you know, too bad for you guys. So the church can't look at a world and just say, you know, too bad. It, it has to have it. That's why the mission is always some desire for people to come to be drawn into this life. And so I think actually there's two parts of it, though, too, because this is something that's foundational to our sort of approach to this is. But you also have to have that life. And that's why the life of prayer is so central. That's why living in union with God in Christ the Spirit, in our, in our worship, in our personal lives of prayer, in our communal interactions, that has to be a living experience. That then, having experienced what Christ has done for you, you would say, hey, and, and so, so if you don't have that living experience, if, if the church is just kind of digressed into going through the religious motions and doing this out of duty and, and begrudging, and it falls into certainly a, simply a maintenance organization or an entertainment organization or whatever the various ways it could go, you, you, you lose your sense of mission. <clears throat> That's why you can't just have a mission by saying, hey, everyone come to this great thing. It's like, well, what is this great thing? Is it, is it an entertainment show where you're going to try to entertain your Jesus, or is it a bunch of traditionalists who really need more people to give to keep the doors open? <laughs> With one church that say, yeah, we need more members to help us pay the bills. I said, look, nobody wants so to join your to. church to help you pay your bills. That's not, <laughs> I can't wait to go. Nobody wants to do that. Uh, so, so that's why the, the inner life to know God in prayer is a necessary foundation for mission to reveal God outwardly. And there always has to be a balance between the interior life and the exterior witness. If if you have a, a genuine interior life, then it it will be it will be shown to be defective. There's no desire. And when I say outward orientation, we have different gifts. Not everybody is a street evangelist, but your gift would be I can serve in this way. I can you know, I could be concerned for people. I can. There's all sorts of ways within the your the work that God has given you to do with your personality and temperaments, your prayer, your your. You can reach out by phone. You can reach out by letters. You can you can serve in various ways. The impulse to do that will naturally flow out of your own interior life. If that impulse is lacking, then we ask, what's going on? Do I not? You know, and and so that's 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 how that dynamic works. Verse six: I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours; you gave them to me. That's an interesting idea. That that the Father, in the mind of the Father, He knows who are His. Now Jesus has come representing the Father and called them, and so they're, they're, they now belong to him. The Father's given these to the Son. It's interesting, too, if we carry that out to another very Johannine imagery of bridegroom and bride, that, that we, the church, that the Father's given the, the Son, uh, these, these, these people, the bride. 
gave them to me and they kept your word. Now, keeping your word is following Jesus because he is God's word. So what what shows they kept their word is that they have stayed with Jesus throughout the whole of his ministry and life. Now they have known that all things that you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them, and have surely known that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Um, usually, if you have a, sometimes that's a indication. It's a it's a prophecy that is is, is talking about being fulfilled. Um, here, actually, here it, it talks about an alternative rendering of um, I think it's a textual note. Yeah, this says. Um, So it's not significant for our discussion here today. You are, it's not. <laughs> First, I pray for them. So now he's going to, so now he's got these, he's, he's, the idea is he's going to go away, so he's, he's offering a prayer. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So when he says he doesn't pray for the world, it doesn't mean we don't pray for God to be at work in the world or we don't pray for anything in the world. But when he says he doesn't pray for the world, he means Jesus didn't come to prop up the regimes of this world. And it's really a problem, I think, that we have a little bit in the West of the idea that the church exists to make the world work or to correct the world. It, it doesn't. It, it exists to bear witness in the world. So Jesus, in other words, our prayer can't be God, please, you know, make America work. It's, it's that we would be faithful witnesses in the context we're in and um, that God will work his will. What, what from the very beginning that we've always prayed for, for, for governments, that you've always prayed, is what we really want is justice, that you truly and impartially administer justice. Because that's the role of government is to act is to God has put government in place to execute justice. When governments don't do that, they will be held accountable. That's always historical judgment. Uh, but you see this, it's not even in just the New Testament phenomenon. You see this specifically in, in for example, the book of Daniel, where God starts talking to Daniel about the Babylonian ruler, like you didn't do what you're supposed to do, so you're, or you become haughty, so there's a handwriting on the wall. But God's people are just underneath that, and they live out their life as witness they're, 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 but their point is to pray for them to, to, to do their God-given role, not to save it come what may. That's a very important distinction. 
Now I'm no longer in the world, verse 11, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Um, keep here would have the sense of guard, protect. If you read on, we'll get the sense he said it would keep them, keep them together, that they may be unified as we're unified. More about that as we come to more verses. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Scripture here is the Psalms that talk about um, uh, someone betraying the Messiah. It goes back to King David and his betrayal by his trusted counselor, Ahithophel. But those psalm verses, they have a secondary horizon of, of Jesus being betrayed by, by Judas. Well, he, when you betray the Son of God, you become a son of of the evil one. That's that's kind of the idea. But he's not himself. He's become the son of. A, so if 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 um, if those who are connected to to Jesus have eternal life, become children of God, have life. Those who reject him become children of the other and have their destiny as not life, which is the idea of perdition. Well, when you said your father is not Abraham, is the devil. Yeah. Pharisees at that time. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's interesting, joy. Why joy? Not because they'll always be happy in the world, but because they live in union with the Father. That's always characterized people of, 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 of faith who, who live in um, communion with God is joy. Yeah. Or that son is really um, that, that they, and we ought to think about that. So when we live in this life of prayer, we live in close communion with God. There should be a presenting sense of joy within us. That, um, as we had in the chapters before, in, in, in the world we'll have tribulation, but, but there's a joy and a life that the world can't touch. That, and so that it, it's, therefore we have to be understand that the joy is not, I feel great all the time outwardly, but that I have an inner connection to God that, that can never be touched by the world. And this is this is like we're celebrating um, two martyrs today, Fabian and Sebastian. The reason the martyrs were, were willing to become martyrs because they have something that, that the world couldn't take away, even by killing them. They, they, they held on to something eternal and joyful. And that's, that's the distinction.
have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And hated, you know, it's like you could you could have like a paranoia complex, you're like everyone hates us, but it's it's more the general sense that when someone is present as a witness to remind people of God's word and will, there's gonna be a general opposition to that we don't want to hear. It doesn't mean they'll you know, but it, it they're just uh, an, an unwillingness to hear to be confronted by the witness. So just as Jesus, the Gospels, is opposed, so those who represent him will also be opposed in some way. Fifteen, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. This is right from the Lord's Prayer. He is not into temptation to deliver us from evil, which is more literally the evil one there. Now, this is just the cosmic drum, because this is back, back to Genesis, where the serpent in the garden Jesus in the wilderness. And now, by keeping them from the evil, what does that mean? How take we... Take them down. Don't, don't let the evil one take them down. And take them down would mean what? Giving up despairing. Giving up their faith. That is the primary thrust of demonic temptation, is to get you to, to surrender faith. Um, Worldly temptation wants you to be overcome with all kinds of stuff and desire to be rich and famous or whatever it is that the world is offering. Fleshly temptation is a temptation to fulfill interior desires that are not God's will. Demonic temptation is not really either of those per se. The devil's happy to have you... Um, Give up your faith because you fail or because you succeed. Whatever the circumstance is that can lead you to say, I'm, I'm done. So this is why I says keep, uh, keep them from the evil one. And it's why sometimes the misfortunes we suffer in life, we can come to understand as gifts. Because they create humility that keeps us connected to God and help keep us from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And I think to some degree, sanctify them by your truth would be a little bit of fulfilled in the um, giving of the Holy Spirit. Because that's sanctify. The word sanctify or holy always means to be set apart. And the church is supposed to be set apart by its faithfulness to God. And the gift of the Spirit enables us to live in this way that, that is, is the way Jesus lived and sets us apart. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Again, Jesus, the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Apostles. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified by the truth. And so the, the idea here, I think, is that his death on the cross is for them. He's doing it for them. And as he does this, then he's praying that they will also be set apart and fulfill their vocation to, to, to suffer and, and to share the cross so as to share the glory. 
What's that? They all did. Verse 20, then we get we get included. I do not pray for these alone, but for also for those who believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The interesting connection there is the idea that um, unity aids the witness. When there's a unified witness, more powerful to the world. And so the prayer for, for, for unity, which is obviously um, on one level a problem among Christians because there's a great deal of division. And people will say, wow, see, it's going to be one. Why can't you all get along? But I, I mean, for most of us, you know, um, that's way beyond our pay grade. But the reality is the unity of the church is promoted much more in how we maintain where we are, that unity of the body. And, and I think it means having a um, charitable and loving connection with those outside of our particular body. And so you 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 working to maintain unity and, and, and work against the things that undermine unity like um, well there's a lot of things that undermine unity. Um, petty arguments that really don't pertain to the truth. Sin undermines unity. Um, when you, you when we that's why that's why Jesus says I, I he sanctifies himself by dying, giving himself fully for their sake. So each of us, and this is something that's really significant, that because we've become this idea to understand that morality is all individual. I get to do what I want to do. No, our faithfulness is, yes, we certainly benefit by staying in union with God, but it is for the body. If, if this is literally a body and we're all members of it, then when any one member doesn't remain faithful, it is it injures the body. And, and so, um, so working on, you know, uh, unity by, you know, like, who, who are you sideways with in the church? Is there a way you can reach out and maybe there's not, you can pray about it, maybe you don't know. But anyway, the idea is to be understanding that, that um, with the unity of the body, and I guess my point here is, Rather than worrying about how all the churches are going to come together, because we can't do that. Nobody ever calls me for any, you know, how is, you know, all this. But, but I can impact how unity plays out in the various arenas where I'm actually present. And this is always the problem with faith, where people want to talk about what's happening over there. But, but what are you, what's that like where you really are? And people want to talk about, you know, they're all fighting. Well, how about your family? Are you guys fighting? How about your relationships? Are you holding? So boil this thing down. They may be one. If we be agents, that's how we, how do we work for that at a level? Now, all that unity doesn't mean there's no, never a, a place for a confrontation. There's something wrong because what, what undermines unity? False doctrine undermines unity. John's been very clear. 
John will be very clear about this, this will, um, so something wrong, no. This is why we say no, you can't believe that, you separate, that's an undermining immunity. Uh, again, sin, no, we can't do that, that's, so we work for unity, and I think the best way is to think that the, the actual unity we can affect by our actual prayer and behavior. And I, I think also, this is kind of psychological, We can create this whole story about that person. We can get off with other people about that. I, I think you're, I think that's right. I mean, I think that that um, your ability to reach out and love to others, we talked about it a little bit earlier is going to be born of your own experience of God's love in your life as you really are. And if you experience both grace from God in regard to your life, and then you learn to be gracious to yourself, because that's a, a corresponding thing. I've discovered a lot of people uh, believe God forgives them, but they really haven't forgiven themselves. They want it to be different. But if you're at peace with that, then you can reach out to other people in their ambiguities and you can be compassionate, even if they're being difficult, they understand there's stuff in them they're working on. But if we're not resolved within ourselves, or we're hard on ourselves, we'll tend to be hard on others too. So we will project out this experience. So we have to be integrated within ourselves, in a sense, and experiencing God's grace, and then we can reach out to others in a, in a way. That, but just remember, we all come to the you know, communion like, we all kind of saying we have all kinds of sins and ambiguities and God says here. So now we go out to, to everyone else. Do we want to now that unity we have to work on that at the low at the at the immediate level of our influence? Not that we can't pray for it in a larger way also. Verse twenty two and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one which suggests that the glory is his humble obedience to the Father, which unites him to the Father. So our humble obedience to Jesus unites us to each other. He's given that to us, the ability to walk in that way. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you love me faithful witness in the world to the love of God. Father, I desire thee also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. They may behold my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a uh, two levels of this. I desire they may be with me. In a certain sense, we live, we, if we live in Christ and he is with the Father, there's a certain aspect of our being that dwells. Uh, in, in the Epistle of Ephesians, St. Paul says, we've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when you get to Revelation uh, chapter uh, 5, 4 and 5, where the 24 elders worship before the throne, it's an image of the church, specifically 
carried out in the Eucharist where we are entering into the very presence of God and participating there. But clearly, there's an unfinished aspect of that, too. So he says that they may uh, be with me. We're with them on one level, and on another level, we're waiting for the completion of it. O righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Now I've declared to them your name, and will declare that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I am them. So the, the essential thing in this passage is that the Father sends Jesus, who faithfully represents him. Now he's praying for his disciples and going to send them that they will faithfully represent him and fulfill their own mission. And then for us, that we as descendants of that may be faithful, experience the unity with each other and God and Jesus. Then we'll start the, uh, the, the the passion narrative next week with John 18, 19, so. Let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make this face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this 